Okay, I, can we just settle down? I, I just want to actually, I don't know if there was a copy left on the book table, but I just want to mention one book to you, which if you don't know, it may not be what you would automatically pick up, but there is a very good modernized and abridged version of um, William Gurnall's book, The Christian in Complete Armor. So he was a Puritan. And this um, book, it's a modernization and it has daily readings from that book. So the, the original book is an absolute monster, but it's really well done. And so if you're interested in, in reading and thinking more about spiritual warfare, this is a couple of the, the real soldiers of the Christian faith, what they said. So John Newton of the book, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, said, if I might read only one book beside the Bible, I would choose the Christian in complete armor. And Charles Spurgeon, who George has mentioned once or twice, said, Gurnall's work is peerless and priceless. Every line is full of wisdom. Every sentence is suggestive. I have often resorted to it when my own fire has been burning low, and I have seldom failed to find a glowing coal upon Gurnall's hearth. So we, we have some copies. It's only like 80 rand or something. So check it out. That may just be encouraging to you as a daily devotional type of thing. It's Gurnall is the surname, G-U-R-N-A-L-L. -L. It's called Daily Readings from the Christian in Complete Armor. We, we just had a bunch of copies at a really good price. So there are some on the book table. Okay, um, as we turn to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians here before lunch, we find that Paul is going to have a, a build-up to what is often called the fool's speech. Now, let me give you the, the big-picture strategy of what's going on here um, so that we kind of understand what, what Paul is doing. Because he, um, he, in essence, says that he is going to boast like a fool here. Um, He's going to call the boasting of the false teachers foolish, and he's going to say, if it takes me boasting foolishly to get your attention, okay, I'm, I'm going to resort to that. It's almost like the Corinthians have pushed him and pushed him and pushed him, you know, this, this kind of uh, difficult group that's still hanging out with the false teachers, and Paul uh, acts here in chapter 11 like, okay, you push me to the stream. You want me to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the false teachers? Okay, I'll do it. I'll boast. And he launches into what is called the fool's speech. And initially, it sounds like in the first breath or two, like he's going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe them. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. You know, so he's given his credentials. And then he, he launches into, this is how many times I've been beaten up. This is how many times I've been in jail. Uh, this is how many times I've been shipwrecked. So what he does is he, um, he kind of says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boast. I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe and do what I said I wasn't going to do. But then he flips the tables immediately. And he boasts in a way that is counterintuitive to what the Corinthians were wanting him to boast about. They were wanting him to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and say, here's the way I'm, I'm trained as a speaker. Here's the way that I've led the church. You know, all of these kind of uh, things that would have been in line with Corinthian culture. And instead, what Paul does is a brilliant rhetorical move 
he, uh, he launches into a boast, but it's a boast about all the ways that he has been inadequate and hurt and according to the standards of the culture hasn't measured up, <laughs> which is just, it's just brilliant when you understand what he's, what he's doing here. Uh, but he builds up to that. And so if you look on your outline, you have um, this section starting in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, is the first step in Paul boasts like a fool to stop the false apostles. Um, the first movement is 11, 1 through 4, where he says, bear with me and not them. We're going to talk about that language there. Number two is Paul and the super apostles. Very interesting passage where he talks about this group of false teachers in a way that I think is so relevant. He says that uh, just as Satan is an angel of light. In other words, what you see is not what you get. It's uh, something different. He says these false teachers are the same way. Uh, on the surface, they look like real Christian ministers, and they're not. They're actually serving Satan in what they're doing. So he comes to this very clear, overt statement about uh, who and what these false teachers are and we're going to also talk about the language of super apostles here. Um, and then finally, third, um, he talks about embracing fools. And it's another bit where suddenly Paul is just making it very blunt and overt and making a very direct appeal to the Corinthians and saying, guys, listen, um, it's time for you to really make a decision here. These guys are brutalizing you. You don't, you don't want me to be like them. It, he's just using a lot of very raw, kind of strong language in the rhetoric that he's using here. Now, let me just tell you one thing to keep in mind as we get ready to move into this uh, section. Paul, a couple of things here. Paul is using um, the methods of his day in terms of public speaking and that kind of thing um, in a way that he's marshalling all of his tools here to try to get this last group of Corinthians to come over. All right, so some of the forms that he's using, just as we've talked about throughout the book, they're, they're not um, the forms that we use in our cultural context, either in, in America or in South Africa. So we have to kind of understand that, for instance, when he uses sarcasm that we're going to see in just a minute, it was a, a, an appropriate rhetorical tool in his cultural context. For us, it might be more offensive if we tried to use it in our cultural context. So we have to kind of get be behind the actual tool to understand that, that what he's doing is he's using the tools to try to get them to do the right thing. Again, it can sound like manipulation to us, but it's not. It was entirely appropriate to his cultural context. And then secondly... Um, the language that he's using here sometimes is very strong and very harsh, and it's because the situation is very dangerous, very, very dangerous. Okay, let me, let me draw one, one analogy to what I mean here, because when we hear Paul, he's not modeling for us how we need to normally interact with people, is my point. Uh, this is a unique, very intense uh, loaded situation that we're seeing revealed in his interaction with these false teachers. It's not normal way of interacting with people, okay? So let me give you an example. 
uh, when Joshua was, was small, I mean, I'm guessing Joshua was probably four or five years of age. I, at that time, we would go to Walmart, which is a big, uh, great big uh, giant box store. Do you have Walmart here or any form of it? Good. Okay, um, so we would go to Walmart in big, big uh, parking lot. No, I, Walmart's great. I mean, we don't have Walmart in Canada either, do we? We have Super Canada. Okay, same type of thing. Big, big box store. Anyway, big, big parking lot. And uh, I trained Joshua at that time, talked to him, said, look, Joshua, when we get out of the car, you stand right next to Daddy, and you, you stay there until I can take your hand, and we're going to walk into the store. Why? Because this is a huge parking lot. There are cars zipping up and down the aisles. It's a dangerous situation. And one time we... Uh, we got out of the car, and, you know, normally Joshua would just kind of hang there by Dad and, and wait for me. But, but he wandered. He got distracted, and he wandered out to the edge of the, of the aisle there. And there was actually a car that kind of zipped right by there, which scared me. And so I got, I got down in his face in a Daddy kind of way. I mean, I got down on my knees in front of him and said, Joshua, you listen to Daddy. Daddy told you to stay right here by me, and you did not. You disobeyed me, and you got out there on the edge, and you could have been hurt. And, you know, so I'm, I'm being very intense with him at that moment, and then he was looking at me, and those eyes just puddled, you know, because I wasn't yelling at him, but I was intense in a way that I'm not normally intense. Why? Because this is, I mean, literally, it's life and death if he gets out there and gets hit by a car, you know. So then after I, I had the intensity moment, I said, now, Joshua, come here. Daddy loves you. The reason why Daddy's being very serious about this is because I don't want you to get hurt. And I gave him a big hug and, you know, kissed him, and then we went into the store. But the intensity was not my normal way of acting and talking to him. I, I, didn't, talk to, I didn't talk to my children on a daily basis like that, Right? But, but this was a really, it really for me was kind of a, an intense moment because I wanted to, that to be driven home to him. You, can, you better believe that the next time he got out of the car, he stood right there by me, next to me, right? Um, so the intensity that we're reading in Paul's language here, in his rhetoric, we need to read that as, as an expression of his very, very deep concern about the, the situation with these false teachers, it's, it's a moment for plain speaking and even just marshalling all of your forces <clears throat> to, combat, <clears throat> to combat the situation. Okay? Uh, we have to be wise about this. Um, boy, there are moments in our cultural context in which what's more effective is your ability to actually speak very reasonably and calmly with people as they're kind of you know, getting intense about things, um, that's, that seems to be more effective in certain contexts today. But I'm not saying there never would be a situation in church where we would get intense and plead with people in tears if we felt like people were being led off into false doctrine and we were just kind of at the end of what we were going to be able to do in the situation. Uh, there, may be t- there may be times that we would stand up and actually say, look, guys, this is false teaching. You're about to go down a path here. It's going to be destructive for you. But, but hear Paul for what he's doing. Hear his intensity for the moment that we find him in. All right, so look at uh, the first four verses of chapter 11. 
And again, I'm going to try to just kind of move on through part of this, but the first four verses we would tag as bear with me and not them. Bear with me and not them. Let's look at the language and see if I can unpack the language just a bit. I wish you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. Yes, do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a jealousy from God since I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that just as the snake deceived Eve by his chicanery, I translated this, your thought processes might be ruined, steered away from a sincere devotion, a sincere pure devotion to Christ. As a matter of fact, if an interloper, one of these false teachers, preaches another Jesus than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than the spirit you receive, the Holy Spirit, or a different gospel than the one you, uh, the one you espoused, you bear with it splendidly. Now, what he's saying here is, okay, guys, bear with me and quit bearing with them. Quit tolerating them. Let me, let me tell you the language here and tell you how he's kind of going into a bit of sarcasm here. He's pleading with them. Paul begins with a wish that the Corinthians would bear with him as he exercises a bit of foolishness. And he's leading up again to his foolish speech that he's going to give beginning down a little bit later in 11, 22, 23, right in there. The, um, the word that is used here of, um, of bearing with somebody, let's talk about that just a minute. It's a word that speaks of tolerance, of putting up with something, of, of kind of working with something in what they are doing. Paul is saying that he wants the Corinthians to bear with him, to to kind of work with him, to yield to him in the situation. And specifically, what he's wanting to do is he's in essence saying to them, hey, work with me here as I, you know, foolishly make an argument that I don't really want to have to make. Does that make sense? He, he's saying, look, you push me to the wall. Okay, that being the case, bear with me, work with me here. So it's like you, you go into a situation where somebody has been, you know, uh, difficult at work, and they're sitting there when you come in the room, and they have their arms crossed, and everything about their posture is unyielding. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm sorry to keep going back to my children, but they just are good illustrations of lots of things. Um, I remember uh, at times, and, you, and also because you know this, you've, if you have kids, you've experienced these kind of dynamics Good illustration of this working with me thing, bearing with me. Uh, when Anna was small, Anna, boy, strong, strong will. And I can remember, you know, coming and, and trying to confront her, talk to her about something. In fact, Pat would use the analogy with her and, and take a, and she would take putty and she would take a rock and she would say, Anna, which is the condition of your heart right now? Is your heart soft or is it hard like this rock? You know, and I can remember coming to Anna and, and starting to talk to her. She knew that I was confronting her on something she'd done wrong, and she'd be sitting there like this, and everything in her posture was like this. You know that posture with your children? And I would come, and, and she would be sitting there with that kind of posture with me, 
and I may, you know, get down on knee or I may look with, at her. And, and, and what was telling of the posture is her eyes, she wouldn't meet, make eye contact with me. And so what I would do is I would take her little chin as I was talking to her, and I would just raise her little chin so that her, she was looking me in the eyes. And normally when I would say, Anna, look at Daddy in the eyes, and I would kind of raise her little chin. And normally when she looked and we made eye contact, again, those tears, you know, the, the eyes would start puddling. And, and it was like a, a ray of, of softening fluid or something that went to her heart and would just kind of open her heart to me. And then she would, she would start being open to what I had to say. You understand what I'm saying? She would, she would then move from a posture of resistance to a posture of working with me, of being open to me. And so the Corinthians at this point are in a posture, some of them, that, that uh, difficult minority that Paul is still trying to pull in, some of them are standing with the false teachers and they're very open to what the false teachers are saying, their evaluation of Paul and all that kind of stuff. They're tolerating them. They're bearing with them in their criticism of Paul. Paul is saying, look, turn to me and become open to me. Bear with me. Open up to me here. Work with me in this situation and let me kind of do a bit of foolish reasoning here and listen to what I'm saying and kind of think with me here and walk with me here through what I'm about to do. All right, so um, work with me is what he is saying. And then he, he moves to this um, language of Old Testament, for I'm jealous with you with a jealousy from God. Now, the language of jealousy here is, um, is language that, that speaks of God's righteous jealousy where his desire, it's, a, it's language of desire, that's an appropriate kind of desire when somebody is getting off in a, in a direction that they should not get to. And he's using the language of marriage relationship here. You have this language in the Old Testament, for instance, where God is a jealous God. Um, it does not mean that it's, an, it's a wrong kind of jealousy. It's actually an absolutely right kind of of jealousy, like a father would be jealous or zealous, you could translate it, for his children's well-being. A husband is zealous or jealous for uh, a wife's affection and it not being taken away to somebody else. In the ancient world, this word could have negative connotations. Uh, the word is zelao or zeloo, depending on how you tr pronounce it. Um, you know, it could have negative connotations, but it also could be very appropriate. It could speak positively of intense desire that was expressing dedication. And so Paul is saying here, I am jealous of you in a way that, as uh, Victor Furnish translates this, I care deeply about the situation here, care deeply about you, passionate that we get this right. So it's not a negative form of jealousy. It's actually a very positive form of passion. And it is very much in line with God's desire for his people to be in the right place. John Chrysostom, again, writes this about 
this verse. He said, Paul uses a word here which is far stronger than mere love. Jealous souls burn ardently for those whom they love, and jealousy presupposes a strong affection. Then in order that they should not think that Paul is after power, wealth, or honor, he adds that his jealousy is divine. It's from God. For God is said to be jealous, not in a human way, but so that everyone may know that he claims sovereign rights over those whom he loves and does what he does for their exclusive benefit. Human jealousy is basically selfish, but divine jealousy is both intense and pure. Isn't that a great quote? I love that. So he says that I'm jealous for you with a God kind of jealousy, and then he uses an analogy, a word picture here of betrothal. The apostle using this language is also grounded in the Old Testament. It presents the picture of God as the lover, God as uh, God's people as the betrothed. The word picture picks up on this rich Old Testament background. Um, covenant commitment in the Old Testament is often spoken in the language of marriage of God to his people. And Paul, in essence, playing off of that language, pictures himself as the matchmaker or perhaps the father of the bride who is bringing the bride to the bridegroom, right? And that's his role. I mean, his role as apostle is to proclaim the gospel, to uh, challenge people to respond to the new covenant in a way that they are coming into this very rich, appropriate relationship with God. And so Paul says, uh, by analogy, I have brought you as a per pure virgin to Christ. In other words, it's like the father in the ancient world. One of his roles was and jobs was to protect the purity of his daughter so that when they came to the marriage day, it would be a happy celebration, everything would be great, and he would be able to, with integrity, hand his daughter off to this new family relationship and that kind of thing. Paul says, that is what I, that's my ministry, is in a gospel kind of way to bring you and present you to Christ in a way that you are pure. And, and again, he's talking about a purity of relationship and theology and, and all of that kind of stuff. In other words, he guards their theological integrity so that they can be presented appropriately to Christ. How, how do I know that, that he's talking again here about these things of the mind and thought processes? Well, we'll look at verse 3. But I'm afraid that just as the snake deceived Eve by his chicanery, his deception, your thought processes might be ruined, steered away from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Again, we see theology, right thinking, right teaching being at the heart of what's going on here. So he says, my concern is that the, what these false teachers are doing is they're twisting your thinking and they're leading you down a path that is going to be destructive for you and in essence is going to wind up being you, um, you know, not being the pure bride that Christ wants you to be. And so you've got uh, Paul using this really rich kind of imagery. I wish, we, I wish we had more time to unpack this, but let me just say that when he talks about them being ruined, is the way that I've translated here, going down the wrong path so that you're, you're heading to a place of being ruined, it, it was a word that was descriptive of meat that was spoiled, for instance, in the ancient world, something that was uh, destroyed because of it being um, in a wrong place at the wrong time, 
going in the wrong direction. They risk being steered away by Satan. And so what he says to them is um, they have, have not been bearing with him. They need to turn to him and open up to him because what they've been doing is they've been bearing with the false teachers. Verse 4, as a matter of fact, if an interloper, one of these false teachers, preaches another Jesus than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than the spirit you received, or a different gospel than when you espoused, in other words, that you embraced in the beginning, you bear with it splendidly. That's sarcasm. He said, boy, you're tolerant people. Look at the way you're tolerating these false teachers. It goes back to the fact that Paul is trying to get them lined up so that they can be strengthened the way that they're supposed to be strengthened. If you look at uh, the book of Hebrews again, it's, it's striking that with the church being um, some of the people in the church that Hebrews is addressing, kind of having one foot out the door, being a very dangerous spiritual place, turning their back on Christ and Christianity potentially, uh, with them being in that place, the author says that the foundation stone that is the beginning place is right thinking about Jesus. And this is the way I'd normally introduce the book of Hebrews, and maybe we'll have a chance to come back and do that sometime. But I say that the main point of Hebrews is this, that your clarity of thought in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf will determine your perseverance in the faith that your perseverance in the faith will be in a direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. In other words, if you begin thinking in a fuzzy way about the identity of Christ or the work of Christ, it is going to be something that sends you off direction in terms of hanging in there in the Christian faith. And what Paul is trying to do here is calling them back to getting aligned with right Christian thinking so that they can then be strengthened in the faith. Um, over the past 15 years, my back has gone out on me several times. I was in the hospital a couple of times. The uh, L4, L5 area of my back um, was traumatized. But about a year and a half to two years ago, I, I actually had that happen again but by God's grace, I was put with a guy, of, uh, I think you would call him a physiotherapist here. Is that what you call him? So we call him physical therapist in, in the U.S. And uh, Heath is just brilliant in the back. I mean, he's a brilliant guy. A lot of the people around him said, this guy knows more about the back than just about anybody. And uh, almost immediately when he got with me and he examined me, he said, well, really, the, the precipitating factor here is not your L4, L5, because I'd always been told that you've got, you have a bulging disc and you just need to strengthen this and do, um, you know, these kind of stretching exercises. He said, that's not the main problem. He said, the problem is in the center of your back, uh, you have, it's probably from an injury in the past. I think it was when I was playing basketball in, in, uh, when I was in university. It wasn't, yeah, so. Um, but he says, you have interlocking facet joints, so in your back, you know, down your spine, you've got these little knobs that stick out, your facet joints. And these, I had two facet joints, one over the other that was interlocking with the one below it. And, and that was traumatizing somehow, the L4, L5 area. So it made perfect sense to me immediately because when my back would go out, it felt like a hinge 
just collapsed in my back. And I would be on the ground, and literally I couldn't get up. The second time that it happened, um, I stayed on the, in the, on the floor of the closet for nine hours because I was determined not to go to the hospital. And I couldn't get up off the floor. You're talking about hard-headed. I am hard-headed at times. But finally, I just gave up. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't get up off the floor. So, what, so the solution that he said this all about, in fact, what he did was right after I got with him, he twisted and, and manipulated my back. He's not a chiropractor, he, but he manipulated my back. He twisted in such a way that it, that it went pop and it got back straight. Those facet joints got unlocked. And I immediately started feeling better. But over the next year to year and a half, what he did was they started in a process that strengthened my back. So he got everything straightened out, if, it, if you will, and then started a process of strengthening. I feel my back feels healthier than it has in my entire adult life. Why? Because things got straightened out, and that was the basis for it being strengthened. So what Paul is trying to do here is the beginning place is to get them to get straightened out in terms of their thinking. Now, the beginning place is, is going to be for them to reject these false teachers, to get back aligned, if you will, with Paul and his gospel. And then that's going to be the basis for them moving on in right relationship with God um, through Christ. Okay? So he's, he's saying, you need to open up to me and quit opening up to them. You're too tolerant you know, there's, there's, a, there's a form of being open-minded where your brains fall out. And Paul is saying, you guys are too open-minded here. You're open-minded to the wrong stuff. Now, look at the, look at the, uh, the way that he follows this. And uh, follow, follow with me the description that he gives in verses 5 and following. And there's just, just really some lovely language here. Um, where he gives this description of the super apostles. Verse 5, I do not consider myself to be the least bit inferior to these super apostles. Verse 6, even if I am, I translate this, an amateur in public speaking, I certainly am not an amateur when it comes to knowledge. Indeed, this has been clear to you in every way on all occasions. Notice again the centrality of knowledge as being the important thing here. Because what was happening was they were accusing Paul of not being a person who was um, trained well enough in order to be a proper leader, you know, in, in this regard. So let me describe some things here to you of what is, what is going on in his language here. So Paul says, I do not consider myself to be in the least inferior to these super apostles. Uh, in uh, the world of scholarship, there's been a lot of debate on who, what is he referring to here, something that he is alluding back to the, the main apostles of the Jerusalem church. I think there are a lot of reasons for saying, well, that's not really the best interpretation at all. I think what he's, he's using the idea of super apostles here is Paul came to town as an apostle, as the one who was founder of the church, father of the church, you know, this kind of thing. Now these false teachers have shown up and said, hey, we're apostles. In fact, we're super apostles. 
huperopostolos. We are, we are even better than Paul is in terms of, of being apostles. And so he's using the language of super apostle here. It might be that it was their terminology, could be, or it may be that he's actually coining the term to describe their attitude about themselves, that they're better than an apostle. Paul's an apostle. We're better than an apostle. We're super. We're above Paul as the apostle. I think this is absolutely a description of these false teachers when he describes the super apostles here. So the first accusation they've brought against Paul is he is an inferior speaker. He is someone who is not uh, able to speak well. That's why he says in verse 6, even if I am, the term is idiotes, idiotes. Uh, In the ancient world, that word could mean someone who is ignorant, someone who is unlearned, someone who is uh, not a professional. It's like in our cultural context, we might use the language, um, you know, of public speaking. Well, I'm just a layman when it comes to that. That's what, at least in my English-speaking context, we mean I'm not professionally trained. But there's another nuance of this word, interestingly. uh, Bruce um, Winter, who's done a lot of really rich background stuff on the Corinthian context, says the other way idiotes could be used is a person who is trained but chooses not to use that training in a situation. So Paul could be saying here, and I think he probably is saying, even though I am a trained person choosing not to use my rhetorical training, even though that's the situation, I really am very skilled when it comes to what's important in this situation, and that is knowledge about Christ and the gospel. Uh, there's a question some people raise, well, was Paul not rhetorically trained? Paul grew up in in uh, Tarsus, Tarsus was one of the top three academic centers of the ancient world. And we know from Paul's writings that we, we see hints, even in this section of 2 Corinthians, that he had rhetorical training. He was very skilled. Now, I don't think he was as uh, trained as, for instance, the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, we, we'll talk about that another time. I know that's a big question. Boy, I just threw that bomb out there, didn't I? Okay. Um, but he, he was skilled and trained. It's just that Paul makes it very clear with the Corinthians. If you go back and look at 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I am not going to use my training in rhetoric as a basis for my ministry to you. Why? Because I don't want your faith to rest on the skills of man rather than on faith in the gospel of God doesn't mean that we should not use speaking skills and all of that kind of thing. Paul is just saying, in that cultural context, it would not have been best or healthy. Because again, he's walking into Corinth, which is just all about this public rhetoric stuff. And he said, I'm just not going to base my ministry on that. So Paul is saying here, even if I am idiotes, uh, and and he's using amateur there in quotes, I think the way we would say it. Even, Even if I'm an amateur like they say I am, 
I am not an amateur when it comes to knowledge. And he says, in every way, on every occasion, I've made it clear to you that I, in other words, Paul's saying, look, theologically, I know what I'm talking about. Do you see how central the idea of knowledge and understanding of the truth is in this whole section? It's just, it's just foundational to understand what he is doing here. So he says, even if I am an amateur in public speaking, I certainly am not an amateur when it comes to knowledge. Indeed, this is made clear to you, verse 7, or did I commit a sin by humbling myself, by preaching God's gospel to you free of charge so that your position might be enhanced? What he's saying is that when he came uh, to Corinth and as he's maintained his ministry with them, he's saying, I humbled myself. That's an allusion to the fact that he worked with his own hands. Remember, that was to do manual labor in that culture was seen as shameful. He says, I humbled myself uh, before you. Was this, was this a sin? Was this wrong for me to preach the gospel to you free of charge so that you might be enhanced? In other words, um, was it sinful for me to make this selfless choice of humbling myself, doing work with my hands, in order that the gospel would go forward among you? Was that wrong of me to do that? Because okay, So what he's doing is he's hinting here at the accusations that are being leveled against him. Because false teachers are saying, look, Paul has led the church in the wrong direction because he's a manual laborer and he's hurting the social status of people in the church or whatever. Paul says, I was not sinning against you. I was building you up as the church. I was making the right decision because one more time, I've said this before, but if Paul had received patronage from the wealthy guy in the church or wealthy group of people in the church, then he would have been socially obligated to them, and the church would have been hurt because now he's in a position of social obligation to people who are not spiritual people. And he said, I'm choosing a different path so that you will actually be enhanced spiritually and your spiritual life will move forward the way that it should be. Verse 8, I requisitioned the resources of other churches by receiving support from them so that I could serve you. Again, he had, he had, he had received mission funds from Macedonia. We know that from broader, even in uh, Philippians talks about that. Uh, he's not there yet to, you know, it's a few years later that he's going to write Philippians. But, but we know from, from Philippians that Paul had support financially from a church like Philippi. So he's not opposed to receiving money to help with ministry. It's appropriate. But he's saying in your situation, your cultural context, it would have been wrong for me to receive that kind of support because it would have hamstrung the work of God in Corinth. And he says, in essence, I, the, the language of requisition here is language that could be used in a, in a military situation for going and, and getting the resources you needed to carry out the, the battle that you were conducting. And he's saying that... Uh, you know, the way this setup was, I was requisitioning from other churches in order to minister to you. In other words, let me just use the Philippians as an example. He, in essence, is saying, I was receiving support from somebody in part of what I was doing in order to, as, as I worked with my own hands and part of their support and all that, in order to 
minister to you. And he actually tells the Corinthians, look, when I go on further west, I'm going to depend on you to help me in that kind of mission ministry that I'm going further. But with your specific situation in Corinth, I'm not going to come be the hired hand of somebody in Corinth because it would have been devastating for you spiritually. Verse 8, again, I requisition the resources of other churches. Verse 9, and when I was with you and needed something, I did not burden anyone for the brothers arriving from Macedonia, provided whatever I needed. In every way, I kept myself from being a burden to you. That language in the Greco-Roman world was a language of obligation. From being a burden to you, from being socially obligated to you, and I will keep doing so. As surely as Christ's truth is in me, this particular boast of mine, as far as I am concerned, will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. In other words, these accusations that people are making against me because I'm not receiving support, I'm going to brag about the fact that God is allowing me to do my ministry free of charge. Why? Because I don't love you, God knows that I do. And what I am doing, I will keep on doing in order to eliminate the opportunity of those who want a chance to be considered our equals in the things about which they boast. So here's what Paul is saying. When I minister to you free of charge, I am making a very clear distinction between the way I do ministry and the way that these false teachers do ministry. And I'm eliminating them from being able to say, hey, we just do ministry just like Paul does. Do you see that? He says, I'm taking away their ability to, to say that there's a direct comparison here between the two. With the church in China, um, in working with the brothers and sisters, especially the ones who were from out in the West, um, one of the things that many of them do is they don't receive any support as pastors. Now, there's, there's actually a problem about this that I'll, I'll mention in just a minute. But what they're saying, what they said to us in that context was, it is three self-church pastors who do it for the money. Three self-church is the official government church, the, the state-sanctioned church. He said because they're professionals who are doing this to make a big salary we make a distinction between ourselves and them by working the, the work of the gospel and the work of pastoral ministry free of charge. And some of them, like you'd have a guy who was pastor of a 1,000-member church, and he's a farmer supporting his family by farming even while he's pastoring a 1,000-member church. Now, in, in our ministry, we had to come alongside them and say, look, biblically, it, it can be very appropriate for people to work in the gospel ministry and actually be supported by the people of the church. So we had to get them to come around and, and think through this with us on how we live this out. But actually, their impulse was very much like what Paul is talking about here. Their impulse was, you know, we need to, because of our social situation, we need to make a real clear distinction between us and the false guys. That's what they're doing. If we look in broader biblical teaching, biblical theology, we'd come around and say it's very appropriate for the ox is worthy of his hire. You know, it's appropriate for ministers who are ministering full-time in the gospel ministry, very appropriate for them to be supported in the ministry that they're doing. So we don't want to read this out of context or say this is a principle that applies in all places at all times. But in Paul's situation, he's saying it was vital 
that I make a distinction between myself and these false teachers who were doing it for the money. That was part of the public speaker kind of mentality is I did it for the money. Um, in ministry, one thing I've talk, I talk to our young ministers about is you want to make sure that you are not doing the work of ministry as a hireling rather than a shepherd. And, and what you want to do is, is you want to have a principle for yourself and a pattern of life where you say, I am doing ministry because of God. God has called me to this ministry, not because somebody will pray, pay me X amount. Now, again, I know practically speaking, there are appropriate times for us to deal with, you know, a church is calling and they say, we want you to work 60 hours a week and we can only pay you half of what you'll be able to live on. I mean, I'm not saying that couldn't be the call of God. You you know, sometimes you have to say, um, you know, this is what God's calling me to. He'll work out the finances, whatever. But it's also entirely appropriate to say, you know what? I've got to feed my family. My, my responsibility is to take care of my family, and I don't sense God leading in this. That's a very different thing from a guy saying, you know, I'm in this, this church of 1,000 people, and uh, somebody comes, and they're in a bigger church or even a smaller church, and he says, look, I'll come, but you're going to have to pay me about 10,000 uh, more than I'm making now or 50,000 rand more or whatever than I'm making now, and I'll only come if you pay me this amount of money. That's kind of a, that's a dangerous kind of thing to do. You need to be very thoughtful about that because um, these false teachers were workers for hire. They were doing it for the money, and we've got to really guard our hearts and, and make sure that we're not um, being hirelings in the way that we approach life and ministry. And I'm, I'm not trying to give an oversimplistic answer there. That's, it can be challenging to think through how I balance meeting the needs of my family and all of that kind of thing. But we can't make, make decisions based on money. When we got, got ready to go to Canada, the biggest skewing factor of us moving to Vancouver was the cost of housing. I mean, by far, it was, you know, as I said before, you, you have a small, moldy kind of house, and the rent is $4,000 a month. You know, so it's it's very difficult thing financially. But for us, it was such a call of God that that prior to, you know, the final financial stuff being worked out, we, we had already in our hearts said, yes, Lord, because it was clear God was leading us to that. And, and wonderfully, God has worked out the situation with the finances so that we've had support from somewhere else that's actually made us be able to live there and, and have a good you know, meet our needs and, and that kind of thing. So we just got to be careful that our hearts are tuned toward uh, calling and not toward uh, being hirelings like the false teachers were. All right, one final bit here. Look at, at what he says here. He says that they are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Okay, here's, here's where he gets very clear. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great surprise that his servants also masquerade as ministers of righteousness, but their fate will be in accordance with their actions. So now he's, he's saying these false teachers are false, apostle, uh, false apostles. They are ministers of Satan. He's putting it very bluntly now. And they are very much in line with the character of their master who is um, an angel of light. 
looks great, and it's bad, bad news. Um, one of the hard things that you face in dealing with the, the problem of false teachers here and that, that we face in the United States or Canada as well is that everybody who stands up and sounds like a minister and looks like a minister and acts like a minister is not a Christian minister. And the heart of it is going to go back to discernment based on what is being taught, the effect on the church, it's a sound theology that's producing mission and righteousness and community and those kind of things, or is it something else based on what's being taught and the outcome and the things that are, that are being produced by this kind of ministry? And, and the, the temptation is, in our context, is to say, well, hey, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's proclaiming the gospel. And you have to ask yourself, is it Jesus? Is it the Holy Spirit, or is there another spirit at work here? Is it the gospel, or is it a false gospel? It just sounds, using the same language, same words. We have Mormonism in uh, the United States. One of my son's options is to kind of go out and do kind of a, a platform thing with his engineering and work with a church plant there. Very, very difficult. So hard. And the reason why it's so hard to deal with Mormons is because the language often is the same language. It just sounds Christian, and it is just so nutso in terms of theology. It's crazy. But it sounds Christian on the surface. And so he is saying these are, these are servants of Satan, they are false teachers, and their fate is going to be very much in line with their actions. I tell you what, some of the health and wealth teachers that we have in our context, I just don't want to be where they are, you know, at the last judgment. My, my friend, again, I, and, and, you know, that I'd mentioned who's gotten off into false teaching I just wept and I pleaded with him, pleaded with him. And he, he kind of, you know, wrote me back at one point and said, I'm trying to figure out why you're doing this. Are you just trying to kind of build yourself up in the Baptist world, you know, in terms of you standing against the, you know, whatever. And I said, man, you don't get it. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you and crying out to you because I am terrified for you. I love you. I want you to be in a right place. I am terrified for you because I'm afraid that, as a false teacher, I don't know his fate. I don't know his, I don't know the condition of his soul. But I am terrified for what will happen when he comes before the judgment seat of Christ. Because he's especially effective as a communicator. He's leading thousands and thousands of people down a false road. That basically says the gospel means you can live however you want to sexually. And it really is okay as long as you're sincere and it's kind of the essence of who you are. And the gospel of grace means that that really that's okay with Christ. He, He loves you just as you are with the decisions that you've made. And it's not, not an issue of orientation. I know people have inner struggles, that kind of thing. But, but in, in terms of practice, he's saying, hey, your practice is absolutely, it can be righteous. And so Paul is, is deeply concerned about this situation because, in essence, what they are doing is they are serving the cause of Satan rather than the cause of Christ.
Now, we'll pick back up there after lunch, and we'll see how he then transitions into what is called the fool's speech, and, um, and we'll go from there. You guys are actually doing really well and listening quickly today, so that's great.